Can you believe it's the third Sunday of Advent already? We're going to light our, maybe, light our third Advent candle. In Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, the prophet declares that when God comes among us, the deaf shall hear, the blind shall see, and the tongue of the speechless shall sing for joy. We light this candle as a sign of our hope that God's love in Christ brings healing to us and to the whole world. Amen? We're continuing our series through the book of Ruth. And last week we left Ruth on the threshing floor at the feet of Boaz, this foreigner, this woman who doesn't belong, this woman who's an outsider, this outcast of sorts, has come into Judah with Naomi, her mother-in-law, and she boldly risks everything by going to Boaz at the threshing floor and basically saying, will you marry me? She proposes to Boaz. And this is where we left Ruth last week in Ruth chapter 3. I want to pick it back up. In Ruth 3, verse 9, Boaz says, who are you? He wakes up and there's this woman lying there. He says, who are you? He asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. And we talked last week about the imagery here, this, the, that the corner, it means the wing of the garment. And this is symbolic of God's protection. She's saying, throw the corner of your garment over me. You protect me as God protects all of us. You are one who embodies the protection of God to me. Will you do this? And basically by calling him out as a guardian redeemer, saying, will you marry me? He responds, the Lord bless you, my daughter. And so of all the ways he could have responded, which he could have kicked her out of the community completely, could have sent her back, to Moab, of all the ways he re- could have responded, he responds favorably and invokes the name of God and blesses her. May the Lord bless you, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. So we've talked about how a huge theme through the book of Ruth is hesed. Hesed is the Hebrew word for God's loving kindness or God's compassion, that God is a God of hesed. God is a God who is loyal God is a God who loves. God is a God who is filled with kindness and compassion. And we see in this story how there are characters in this story who embody God's hesed to others. And Ruth is one of those characters. Ruth embodies the hesed of God to Naomi by caring for her, by coming with her back to Judah. And here is where Boaz uses that term again. He says, your kindness, your hesed now is greater than it was before. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And so he's revealing that Ruth could have run after younger men had she wanted to. Instead, she has chosen Boaz. Verse 11, he says, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. And then he says, but. And there's a a big tension 
that now re-enters the story. We, we see Boaz respond favorably. We see this hopeful response, and, and everyone's like, oh my goodness, this is going to happen. Boaz, this man of noble character, this man who is wealthy in the community, this man who is respected and honored in the community, he is going to marry this foreigner, this, this, this woman who is on the outside, who everyone says does not belong. He's going to marry her. And he says, but there's a problem. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. And so Boaz reveals something that we as the readers were not aware of until this point, and the early readers were not aware of until this point, and that is that there is a kinsman who is a closer relative than Boaz is, and he has the first rights to buy back this property that belonged to Elimelech. He can redeem it before Boaz can, legally. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. I, I was studying this this week, and it just cracked me up. No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor, but we all know. <laughs> so the narrator revealed it. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. And so once again, we see Boaz provide in abundance for Ruth, and sends her back to Naomi with a bundle of food on her back. Verse 16, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Now, Ruth is an interesting book in many ways, uh, but one of the ways it's interesting is because the original language it was written in is Hebrew, and the Hebrew language used in Ruth, the way it's used in Ruth often is ambiguous, And so lots of people uh, use Ruth as a book. If you want to learn Hebrew, study Ruth, because there's all these ways you could read different phrases in the book of Ruth. And and scholars argue over and over again over certain phrases. One of these phrases is this phrase here. In the Hebrew, it's actually quite clear what it says. But when scholars read it, they say it doesn't make sense for Naomi to say this. And what Naomi said literally, it says, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, who are you, my daughter? But if you look at all the English translations, they translate it something like this. How did it go, my daughter, or how is it with you, my daughter? And the reason they translate it like this is because, why would Naomi say, who are you? Naomi knows who she is, and she follows it by saying, my daughter. So, of course, she knows who She is. Here's what I think is going on. Skip back to verse 9. Ruth is laying at the feet of Boaz. He wakes up, startled. And what does he say to Ruth? Who are you? It's the same Hebrew phrase that Naomi says. Exact same Hebrew words. Who are you? It gets at the core of Ruth's identity. Naomi is asking Ruth, Has your identity changed? Has Boaz agreed to redeem you? 
Because if he has, you come back to me as a different person than you left me. You left me as one who many in this community still saw as not belonging. You left me as one who is a foreigner. You left me as a Moabitess. Now you're returning to me and I'm asking, who are you? Has your identity changed? Has Boaz said yes? And if so, you are a completely different person than the person who left me. This, I think, is what Naomi is asking. Who are you now? Has your identity changed because of what Boaz did or didn't say, because of what Boaz did or didn't do? Who are you, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And so Naomi knows that Boaz is a man on a mission and that he will settle this matter today no matter what it takes. And so that's where we find ourselves in Ruth chapter 4. Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. And so Boaz goes to the town gate. Now, in the ancient world, uh, towns had gates like this. And if you can imagine uh, in our culture, the water cooler at work combined with the boardroom at work combined with a a courtroom where legal matters are settled. You could combine all three of those together and, and you have kind of what was the town gate in the ancient world. It's the water cooler where the gossip gets disseminated. It's the boardroom where important decisions get made. It's the courtroom where legal matters get discussed and settled. There were literally seats in the town gate for the elders of the town. And so this is where Boaz goes, to the town gate, where important matters are discussed and decided upon. The town gate is mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. One place it's mentioned is in Proverbs 31. If you ever read Proverbs 31, it's this, it's this passage talking about uh, the woman of noble character. And let's be honest, this woman is superwoman. She, like, it says she gets up while it's still night and prepares food for her kids and her servants. So she's the one preparing food for her servants. Uh, she owns businesses. She uh, buys land, and she, she uh, has the land cultivated. Uh, she makes blankets. She makes clothes. She sells things in the marketplace. I mean, th- this woman is like unbelievable superwoman. She runs the home. She runs the businesses. She makes everything happen. You know what Proverbs 31 says about her husband? He sits in the town gate and talks to the elders. That's all he does. I kind of like that. Can I do that? I just, hey, Jenna. Yeah. I don't think it'd go over too well. This is where Boaz goes, to the town gate. And this other kinsman, the nearer kinsman, he comes by, and Boaz says, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Now, Here's another interesting thing in the Hebrew. So I'm reading from the NIV. It says, come over here, friend. 
and sit down. Uh, most translations do translate it friend. Um, it's not the word friend. It's an obscure two words that are only used three times in the entire Hebrew scriptures. Uh, once it's used of a place, and it's referred to as such and such a place. It's just this ambiguous, unknown place. Uh, here, the most literal translation would be this. I'm reading from a Jewish study Bible. It says, Meanwhile, Boaz had gone to the gate and sat down there, and now the Redeemer, whom Boaz had mentioned, passed by. He called, Come over and sit down here, so-and-so. That's how he's referred to, so-and-so. It's like saying, oh, uh, what's his name? What's his face? Uh, That's how he's referred to. Now, it's almost certain that Boaz knows who he is, of course. It's a small town. Uh, So-and-so would be a prominent member of the town and the nearest kingsman to redeem this land. But the narrator has Boaz calling him so-and-so, rather than referring to his name. Why is that? I'm going to let you ponder that for a little bit while we continue in the story. So, so so-and-so sits down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Now, these opening two verses of chapter four should tell us something about Boaz, if we already didn't know it about Boaz. And that is that he is well respected in this community. For him to be able to say to so-and-so, come and sit down, and then to find ten elders in the community, and they also sit down simply because he asks them to, he is well respected. And so ten elders, so-and-so, and Boaz are all gathered together in the town gate. And Boaz says to the nearer kinsman, to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, this is kind of new information because up to this point, the narrator has led us to believe that uh, Naomi does not have possession of this land or that Naomi has no rights to this land. And in the ancient world, that's true. And so it seems what's going on here is that what Naomi has is her name and the name of her dead husband is still tied to this land. And her only hope is that a kinsman will redeem that land. And if a kinsman redeems that land, then they are legally obligated to care for the dead man's widow. And so Naomi then would be cared for if this kinsman says, yes, I will take the land, and therefore, by taking the land, I take Naomi and care for her. And so this is the question Boaz is proposing to the New York kinsman about this land. He says, I thought, verse 4, I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. And so, so so-and-so has a choice to make. Will, Will I redeem this land and therefore take care of Naomi as well, or not? 
in the ancient world, to get to have possession of another piece of land would be of great economic advantage to so-and-so. And he sees this economic advantage, and so he says, I will redeem it. I'll do it. I'll take the land, and I'll take Naomi with the land, and I will care for the land, and I will care for Naomi. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Now this is a curveball for so-and-so. And it's a curveball for people reading the text. There was an ancient law uh, called leveret marriage. And leveret marriage required that if you had a brother who died and his wife had no male heir, you were required to marry your brother's wife and provide an heir so that his name would live on. Leveret marriage does not apply to Ruth. Because this kinsman is not a brother of Elimelech, is not a brother of uh, Malone, who is Ruth's husband. So leveret marriage does not apply here. And so many have discussed what, what is Boaz suggesting here, because it, it, there's nothing in the law that requires that this kinsman, that so-and-so, take Ruth as well and allow her to have an heir that would then own the property. Some suggest that it's his so-and-so's legal obligation to redeem the land and care for Naomi, and that Boaz is raising a moral obligation. And Boaz is saying, listen, I know it's not your legal duty, but it is your moral duty to care for Ruth as well. So-and-so doesn't mind taking care of Naomi because Naomi's an old woman. She's beyond childbearing years. He's not required to marry her. But Boaz is suggesting that he must marry Ruth and provide an heir for her so that her dead husband's name will live on. And so, so so-and-so is faced with a dilemma. He has to decide if he will take Ruth as well. And remember where they are. They're in the town gate. All the elders are assembled. He has his reputation at stake here. If he doesn't fulfill the moral obligation and only fulfills the legal obligation, he will lose standing in the community. And so this is basically, Boaz is saying, this is all or nothing. You either take everything, including Ruth, or nothing. So-and-so opts for nothing. He says, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And so for so-and-so, he saw the opportunity to have the land as an economic advantage. But when Ruth is put in the picture by Boaz, whom so-and-so didn't see Ruth in the picture at all. She doesn't belong. She's a foreigner. She has no rights here. And Boaz raises this moral obligation. And -and so-and-so says, not worth it. Not worth it. Not a good investment. In fact, it's to my economic 
disadvantage if I were to take Ruth. It, it would throw my whole estate into question. My whole inheritance can't do it. You redeem it, Boaz. Go ahead. You redeem it, and Boaz does. Now, here's the question I think the narrator raises for us. How do you view relationships? We live in a world that runs on an economic story. We live in a world that runs on money. And so many of us make our decisions based on economics. Is it worth it or is it not worth it? Because if it's not worth it, I'm not putting my money there. And these decisions of basing our our decisions on economics translate into our decisions about relationships. Is that person worth my time or not worth my time? Uh, Is that person worth me sacrificing for or not worth me sacrificing for? And for so-and-so, his mind is on the economics of the situation. I redeem the land, it's to my economic advantage. If Ruth is a part of the picture, it's to my economic disadvantage. Therefore, I'm not doing it. Because if Ruth has a son, then he gets the land, and I've just wasted all that time all that money on something that now is no longer mine. And so he opts out. Not worth it. When you think about your relationships, who you choose to spend time with, who you choose not to spend time with, who who you're willing to engage, who you're not willing to engage, are, are your decisions based on relational transactions? Do you view people merely for their utilitarian value? Or do you view people for their human worth? Because for Boaz, the economics were not a player in his decision. He viewed Ruth for her human worth. And he said, I will redeem her. I will care for her and Naomi, both. Here's why I think the narrator refers to the nearer kinsman as so-and-so. It's because no one remembers him. No one remembers him. He's just, what's his name? He's just so-and-so. No one remembers him because he wasn't willing to do what it took to provide for the least of these. He wasn't willing to sacrifice his own resources to provide for someone who was in need. Everyone remembers Boaz. He is one of the heroes of the story. But no one 
remember so-and-so. And so he's just referred to as so-and-so. The narrator is raising a question in the ancient hearers' and listeners' minds, which is raised for us today. How do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered as so-and-so, as someone who viewed people merely as an economic transaction, merely for their utilitarian value? Or do you want to be remembered for, as someone who saw the human worth of each person you encountered? That, that you saw each person you encountered as fully human, created in the image of God, in his likeness, as one who is worthy of your investment. So-and-so saw Ruth as a bad investment. Not worth it. Boaz said, she's more than worth it. She belongs. She has an identity here. She has a place of belonging here. Boaz welcomes the one that everyone else felt was an outsider and did not belong as one who belongs. And he chooses to redeem her. We all are people who did not belong. We we were all people who lived under this thing called the law, who needed to be redeemed. Paul shares with us in Galatians, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Back, please. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Paul is saying that there was a time when you were under this thing called the law and God sent his son, this this beautiful picture of the incarnation. God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. And what this redemption means is that for those of us who were outsiders, who were foreigners, who were under this thing called the law. We are now children of God. We who did not have an identity now have an identity. We who did not belong now belong because of the gift of the incarnation, this Jesus born of a woman who came to redeem us, who came to redeem us. And so this story of Ruth is this beautiful picture of redemption. 
God's redemption coming through someone else on behalf of another. We've all experienced this redemption. God's redemption coming in and through Jesus on our behalf. And we too get to embody this presence, the presence of Jesus to those we encounter. We, we get to choose like Boaz got to choose, to be so-and-so or to be Boaz. How do you want to be remembered? As so-and-so or as someone who stepped in to this beautiful story of redemption and says, I will be a redeemer. I'll embody the presence of Jesus in and through me. When we come to this table and we partake of this bread and this cup, we do so to remember that there is one who did not come as so-and-so, but came as the Messiah, who came as the Redeemer, who came and bought us back, redeemed us, so that we could experience the full and abundant life that Jesus came to offer us. He, He came and did not view this as some economic transition, Are they worth it? He looks at us and says, they are more than worth it. And he paid the ultimate price to redeem us. His very life he gave. Jesus came and said, you're worth it. Jesus came and said, you're worth it, and gave himself on the cross. And so when we come and we take this bread and dip it in this cup, we remember that. We remember that he broke himself open and poured himself out for the sake of the world, because You're worth it. And you now have an identity as children of God. And you belong. You belong. And part of the work of the Spirit in our midst is to over and over and over again remind us that we are God's children And we belong because we live these lives often thinking, I'm not worthy. I'm just not worthy. I'm not worthy. We're our own harshest critics. We speak in derogatory terms about ourselves. And Jesus comes and says, you're worth it. You're worth it. You're worth it. I bought you back. You're mine. God, I pray that these these words would be deeply ingrained into our being that we're worth it. You came to redeem us, to make us your own, to call us your children, to restore us into the people you call us to be. God, help us to be a people who who know deep in our bones who we are as your children. God, allow us to be people who know deep in our bones that we belong. We belong to you. We belong to each other. 
we are your people. God, help us to be a people who know deep in our bones that you invite us to embody this said, your loving kindness, your compassion, to show others your love and that everyone belongs. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The incarnate Christ who came among us, who lived among us, who died for our sakes to redeem us so that we could experience the fullness of life in him. May that grace and peace of Jesus be yours in abundance today. Amen. Amen.